Good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning. Just a joy to worship together with you on this cold day. For those of you who are joining us, you're homebound this morning, joining online, um, we're glad you're able to join us in that way. I got a text from my mom after the first service saying, it's too cold in Medicine Hat, Alberta to go to church today. So they're joining us online. And so they're probably not the only ones. And uh, that just made me happy. It made me happy to know that it is colder somewhere else than it is here right now. And uh, misery loves company. But um, good. Yeah, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a, a short, seemingly simple statement. And yet, I mean, if we were really to dwell on it, and we will, um, I don't know that there's a more profound, significant statement that's ever been written or uttered. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the story of the Bible begins. It's kind of where we're beginning this series as, as a church here on Sundays. We're going through um, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, now, maybe you're familiar enough with church in the Bible to know that Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And maybe even know that the word Genesis is just a Latin word that means origins or beginnings because this is a book that is all about the beginnings of everything. And so over these weeks where we're going through these first 11 chapters, we are going to be exploring the beginnings of everything. And, and um, you know, we'll probably be taking maybe four or five months to do this because this is such a foundational set of chapters. It's um, chapters that really uh, give us answers to the questions about life, the biggest questions. Who is God? Who are we? What is the world? How do we relate to God? How do we relate to the world? Um, it addresses the most fundamental questions we have as human beings, and these chapters will shape our worldview. You know, worldview is the way you think of the world. There's lots of different ways to lenses through which you can see the world, right? And I remember years ago, apparently I needed glasses. I didn't know how bad, oh, you guys look really good. Um, I didn't know how bad I needed glasses. Uh, I, I got glasses, and I remember driving to Winnipeg along the river road there. I forget the name of the highway through St. Adolph, just beautiful little drive. And I, I, I put on my glasses for the first time, and I could see. Those things that were blobs, those trees that were just a haze of green, I could see leaves, individual leaves. Signs that I couldn't read, things I couldn't make out or make sense, if I could make sense of them, because I had these lenses. And I, I really think as we go through these chapters of Genesis, it's, it's providing God's lens for us to be able to look at everything, to look at the world, our lives, and God, and really to be able to properly see, to properly make sense of reality. So I just really think this is going to be an important number of months as we go through this together. We're going to learn a lot. I think that's going to be helpful to us in our lives. And I also think our love for God, our love for Jesus, our trust in Him is just going to grow as we're on this journey together. So there's no more important word that shapes your life than the word God. There is no more important word. The, begin, uh, the Bible begins with this incredible claim God exists. Now, for you, that might seem kind of mundane. That's like day one Sunday school. It might seem obvious to you. It's not obvious to everybody. It's a hotly contested claim. God exists, but yet that's where the Bible begins. In the beginning, before the beginning, there was God. 
Now, a lot of people have sought to prove that, to test that hypothesis that God exists in a variety of ways, and some people have looked to science to try to confirm, to prove God's existence. The problem with trying to find the answer, the conclusive proof of whether God exists or doesn't exist in science is that that's a question that science can't fully and ultimately answer for you. What is science? Science is, by definition, the study of the natural of the created world. It does not speak to, it cannot speak to that which is outside of creation. It can maybe drop little crumbs, it can maybe give little hints, we can maybe look at the world and see the order of things and the complexity of life and organisms and, and maybe think that this suggestion, there must be this intelligent mind, this design that's behind the world that is, that science makes sense of. And so science maybe gives us reasons to believe in God, but if we're looking for proof there, we're not going to find it because science can't do that. It's about the natural well, what I do want to say is that our faith and belief in God is not anti-scientific. It is not unscientific. God made science. He made the world. But it does go beyond because there is a reality beyond the created world. Between the net, there is the supernatural. There is God. And so, science can provide reasons. It can't provide proof because God is distinct from His creation. Some of your, your Bibles, we have a variety of different translations, I'm sure, in the room here. Some might begin the Bible a little bit differently than the words we just read, which is the most common translation of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Other versions say uh, a little different. They say, when God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. So it kind of begins a story where actually stuff already exists and now God is just taking the stuff that exists and shaping it and molding it into the universe. So you may have a, a version or, or hear that elsewhere. That there are grammatical and, and a variety of reasons why that's, that's not the best translation of this. Because obviously what it's trying to answer is it's trying to answer why is there something and not nothing? Where do we, where does, it, where does it all come from? And the answer that before anything else there was God. And so God stands apart. He is distinct from His creation. He is preexistent. So science can't prove or disprove Him. Some people have sought philosophy to reflect on the world and what they see and experience and provide arguments for God. And some of them are quite compelling. You've maybe heard some of those. I'm, no, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not going to pretend to be. We're not going to go to this in depth because ultimately I don't think that that's where we find ultimately our answers there's the cosmological argument for God, the, the fact that everything that exists had to have a cause for why it exists. But what about the first cause, the, the, the primary cause of everything else? Well, that cause could not have had a cause. It must have had no beginning, and that primary cause can be none other than an eternal God. So that would be the cosmological argument for God. There, there's the moral law theory argument for God, right? The fact that we look at the world and we see this transcendent moral order that doesn't just seem to come about from, you know, natural selection or evolutionary processes or all of these things are just from within us or that we create, but something that's kind of innate, that's rational, that transcends this, this moral sense of right and wrong, which 
for some people, has become evidence that there must be a transcendent authority, that, that the universe has a moral order that can only be explained by a moral, eternal being who created God. That's compelling. And there are others, and those things might all give us reasons to believe, but, but cannot give us definitive proof. But what, what I do want to say is, because you might hear it, whether you're a student in school or you've got friends that, that want to suggest that belief in God is simply primitive, it's irrational, it's old-fashioned, we're modern, we're secular, we're scientific, you know, we've rejected that sort of thing. Belief in God is not irrational. There's nothing in the world, in science or in philosophy, that suggests that belief in God is irrational. But to truly know God who exists, requires more than science and philosophy. You know, the, the writer C.S. Lewis, some of you know C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest thinkers, authors, uh, professors, was a secular atheist of the last century and had a, had a conversion to Christian faith and belief in God. And he wrote about that. In fact, those of you in the seniors on December or uh, January 27th, you're going to watch the movie about his story of conversion called The, the Most Reluctant Convert, I think, C.S. Lewis. And he wrote about how he... Uh, kind of came to belief in God. He said, looking for God or heaven by exploring space is like reading or seeing all Shakespeare's plays in the hope that you will find Shakespeare as one of the characters. He, he writes in a book called Surprised by Joy, I, I could no more meet him, that is God, the author of the story, than Hamlet could meet Shakespeare within the story. In one sense, if Hamlet were to explore his world within the story, he wouldn't see any evidence of Shakespeare, in one sense. He wouldn't find him in outer space. Oh, there you are, Shakespeare. He wouldn't find him hiding behind a bush or at the bottom of the ocean. But in another sense, Hamlet would see evidence of Shakespeare everywhere. He would be living in the world that Shakespeare created. And the existence of this world is entirely dependent upon its author. But for Hamlet to know, to truly know Shakespeare, personally, even intimately, the author would have to write himself into the story. Could not be found within it. He'd have to write himself in. Hamlet could not, Hamlet could not initiate finding him. For the two to meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Showing himself within the story. And this is the basic claim of the Christian faith, the Christian narrative, that there is an author to our story, the story of our, of our world, our universe. And if we were to ever meet this author, we could not find him and know him simply through our own initiative by searching for him within creation. He must be the one that acts. He must be the one that shows himself, that reveals himself. He must write himself into the story. And this is what we believe he has done. The author of the book of Hebrews begins his letter. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3, he says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So the prophets, what we have is the Bible, where the words of God we believe given to prophets, recorded and preserved for us. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. God, in two different ways, has written Himself into the stories, made Himself knowable 
by us. First of all, he has given his word, he says, to the prophets. He has revealed himself in the words and, and recorded that for us in Scripture so we could know of which Genesis 1-1 is the beginning of that revelation of God to us. But then he says, most fully in his son Jesus, the word that became flesh and made his dwelling among us and in whom we see the glory of God. We see who God is. We meet him. God has written himself into the story in his word and most fully in his son, the word made flesh, that we might know God. For us to know God, he has to reveal himself. He has to be the one to act, to write himself into this story. And he has. This is the claim of the Christian faith. This is, this is where the Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, there, there are all sorts of distinctions in the world. But there are, there are, uh, there's no more fundamental distinction, two different kinds of things, two different categories than God and creation. You might want to think of like material things, you know, and then maybe spiritual things, spiritual beings, angels or demons or different sort of categories, male and female, human, animal, you know, organic life. And there, there's no more fundamental distinction in categories, fundamental difference in kinds than these two things, God and everything else. God and the creation that he has made. And so let's just take a few minutes to talk about God. Okay, we're, we're just going to summarize God. Two hours and 45 minutes it'll take us, right? So buckle up. Just in this opening statement, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, I think there, there, it, it hints at a few things that we can say about God that as we continue in the story and in the scriptures will become clearer and clearer. But, but, but here's, I think, what we ought to see here. If God created everything, then God is absolute and independent. If before anything else there was God, and everything else was created, and then there was, before any of that, there was God, then God is absolute and independent. And, and I just want to kind of share maybe what that looks like in four different ways. He's absolute in at least these four different ways. First of all, God is absolute, we see here, in His existence. God is eternal. God has no beginning and no end. And this is what the Bible teaches and for God to be God, this must be true, even though it hurts our minds to conceive. I mean, if you were to sit down and really think of something that had no beginning and just try to think of that, no beginning always was for all eternity past. I mean, you would need to take an aspirin. That's going to hurt your head. I mean, we can maybe think of something that has no end. It just keeps going on forever and ever and ever because the promise of God to us is for those who believe in Jesus Christ, they will not perish but have everlasting life. That is true for us. We will just have a long life. We will have an everlasting life with God through faith in Christ. Praise God. So we can maybe conceive of that, but to go backwards and something that had no beginning, ugh, that hurts. And that's good. Um... If you could fully conceive and diagram and map God out and understand all of that, then God would cease to be God, right? And so we have all these sort of questions. And, and Luther, at 500 years ago, uh, you know, the, the great theologian Luther, one of his students asked him, what was God doing before the beginning? 
before he created? Like, what was he up to? And Martin Luther said, making whips for people who ask useless questions, <laughs> which I think was a little tug-in-cheek. Um, there are no stupid questions. Well, maybe there are a few. What was God? We have all these, like what we can, for us to be able to conceive would make God, God to be less than God. It's okay to not fully understand because how could we? He's fundamentally different other than us who are limited and finite. But this is what we find at the beginning, that before the beginning, before anything else, there was God. And so it'll say in Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were born or brought forth, uh, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, just a way of saying He has no beginning and He has no end. And at the end of the Bible, Revelation 4, 8, as John records his vision of heaven, he talks about these, these four strange creatures he sees who had six wings. They were covered with eyes all around, even under their wings, and day and night they never stopped saying, and we just sung these words, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, which is just a way of saying God is eternal. He is absolute in his existence. And this is why he said, you know, to his people, it was such a strange command in the time it was given. All the nations, they all had gods, plural. None of them just had a god. It was all gods. And, and, they, had, and they made idols of all these gods. You know, they would fashion them into a bull or some figurine or something else, right? And, but, but, but the one true God came and he said, you are not to make an idol of me, no graven image. Do not try to take the infinite absolute and try to represent him, me, in that which is created and material. Why? Because inevitably when you try to do that, you reduce the godness of God. Instead of God having made us in His image, we start to make God in our image. We start to project ourself onto God. And I said, do not try to make an image of me. You can't do it. Why is it that when people see aliens, they always look the same? I just saw in the news yesterday, maybe you heard this a while back, the aliens are becoming a more of an interesting thing. Apparently, like, there's UFO tapes in, the, in the, you know, the U.S. military, and everyone's kind of interested in this. And um, they, they found these little mummified aliens in Peru. I don't know if you saw this on the news a few weeks ago. And it, and it, was, all, it was kind of on world news. And, and that, they, were like these, they were little, they kind of looked like humans, but they had spindly legs and long, skinny arms and three long fingers and bigger heads, bigger eyes, and like, they always look the same. And so, were these aliens the world wanted to know? They tested them. They took DNA samples of it. And you know what they are? Dolls. Yeah, they're dolls made of linen. Right? Aliens, they're, they're always, they always have two legs, two arms, maybe a different number of figures, bigger heads, bigger eyes. They're just like us, but a little bit different. And that's the sort of God people create. They're just like us, but just a little bit different, a little bit bigger, a little bit more powerful, a little bit wiser, a little bit different. But God is absolute in His existence. We can't even conceive of that. He is self-existing, no beginning and no end. And so when He introduces Himself, He gives His name to Moses. You know, Moses says, I, I, I'm going to go to your people, and they're going to ask, who sent me? Like, what's your name, God? He says, tell them, I am. I am has sent you. God is absolute in His existence. He is completely self-sufficient. He is not dependent on anything outside of himself to exist. And in that sense, he is absolutely unique. He just is. God is absolute in his existence. Before the world began, there was God. 
The second thing we see here is that God is absolute in his essence. Absolute in his essence. By which I mean what he is, he is completely. He's not 50% this, 50% that. He's not 100% this, this day and then the next day he's, he's, he's different than he was the day before. What God is, he is completely. He is absolute in his essence. And, and, and this is why there can only be one God and why the revelation of himself as the only God what was so radically different from those, uh, uh, those other nations around Israel who all had a bunch of gods. Right? Gods, they were born, they died, they fought with one another. Some were stronger than other ones, right? Some were good, some were bad. This day, this person was good. The next day, he kind of woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and now, he, now that God had changed his mind. They were always in flux. So, it says this in Isaiah 45, 5 to 6. God says, I am the Lord, there is no other apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Right? If God is absolute, then there, can, there cannot be gods, because there can't be anything outside of God that existed before the universe, the creation, but just Him. Just his essence, God. Another way of saying that is God is what he has. Whatever God, which, okay, it's kind of esoterical, philosophical. Um, the, the way that I, I maybe heard it, which I thought was helpful. It's not as if like, like these attributes of God, like love and righteousness are just floating out here, independent. There's love and there's righteousness, and God just comes along. Oh, and he just matches. Oh, he's loving because here's love, and he's like that. So God is loving. And, and, oh, and over here is righteousness. And God comes along, and, and that's what God looks like. God is righteous. Okay? As if love and righteousness and these attributes are things that are outside and independent of God. But that's not the case. The Bible shows that God is absolute in his essence. So it wouldn't be true to say that God is loving or God is righteous, but more true to say that God is love and God is righteousness. These are not things that are outside of himself that he corresponds to. This is what he is. He is the very definition and the very sum and the very origin of these things. God is love. God is righteous. He says, I am what I am. And you might think, okay, Rusty, that's kind of splitting hairs. You know, I just live a normal life. I just have problems. I struggle in my marriage. I got health issues. I got financial struggles. Let's get a little bit more practical here. Why does that really matter? It does. It does. That God is absolute in his essence because what that means is if that's true, God never changes. God is unchanging and unchangeable. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he is today, he has always been and will always be. He is a stable God, not a volatile God like everyone else's conceptions of God, where this day they might be that, and then the, the, the next day they might have kind of changed their mind or have a bee in their bonnet. No, if he is absolute, if he is love and he is righteousness, then he, he can be no other. It says in Numbers 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? In other words, God is not like you and me. Like, God's not like Rusty, because you could say Rusty is loving at times. My wife has said that 
on occasion. Once. Right? Rusty is loving. But, but then there's times when, when she would say, Rusty, you're not being loving. She could never say, Rusty is love. She says, Rusty is loving at times. Right? But God is not a man like us where we might like say one thing and then do something else. Right? Or maybe, or maybe really say something, promise something, desire something, intend to do something, but just not have the ability to bring it about. God is not like us. Does he, not, does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? As if those two things are the exact same thing. His speaking is his acting. His promising is, is his fulfilling. There is no division between those things. One is the other. And you see this at creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he said, let there be light. And there was, do you, do you know how the story goes? We're going to get there next week. And there was light, Right? He spoke it and it's there. He spoke it and it's there. His speaking, his words and his work are not two different things. For him to will is is to word, is to work. It's all the same thing. His word and his work are identical. He's not like human beings. When he speaks, his speaking is his action. His promising is his fulfilling. He is absolute in his essence. What he is, he is completely. So God is this stable God. He's not changing. He's not shifting. He's not volatile. Not like us. Like we, we might want to do something and not bring it about, right? Like, like our, our words and our work are different. Like I might be like, trip to Italy. Ah, Stonewall. Minus 27. Trip to Italy. Ah. Okay, well, I guess I better start saving. Okay. Start saving. Oh, geez. Piston went out on the car. Ah, there's all that money from Italy over to the car repair, right? For us, like, right? Like, our, our, our speaking and our acting are not the same thing, but with God, His Word is His work. I don't know if that makes sense to you. I, I hope you're, you kind of understand what that means and why that's important, that God is absolute in His essence, because it means He is... He is the definition of stable. That gets at his next attribute here. We, we, we also see that God is absolute in power. His power is absolute. In the beginning, God created. That word created is bara. Bara is a word in the Bible, it's a Hebrew word, only ever used of God, only God baraz. You and me, we don't bara, we asa. Okay, asa is to make, bara is to create. Asa means to make something, to take something that's already there and reshape it, to make, to, to make clay and make a pot. We made a pot, that's asa. To, to, to get iron ore out of the ground and smelt it down and to make steel, we can do that, that's called asa. To chop down a tree and make planks and build a house with it. That's called asa. We take something that's there and then we make something. Only God baraz. Bara, create this word here, means to take that which doesn't exist and bring it into existence. To make something out of nothing. Bara. Maybe for the term God created ex nihilo, out of nothing, he made everything just by his will. He willed it, and it's all there. And we haven't even seen the end of the universe yet. Haven't even seen the end of it. And he just willed it, and it's there. 
And you know what? It wasn't hard for God. If God's power is absolute, then nothing is harder for God than anything else. Which isn't true of us, right? I mean, I, I thank God for pickle jars. Because how would I ever be a hero in my house if it wasn't for pickle jars, right? Dad! Oh, yeah! Give me that jar. And then when you can't do it, oh, that's a bad look. Your family's all standing there. And, you know, most, so, yeah, sometimes you just, there's times when it's harder than other times, right? There's all, there's, for us, there's degrees. There's degrees of hard. For God, there is no degree. There's no degree in anything. There's no degree of hard. Isn't this awesome about God? There's no degree. It's not any harder for him to do one thing than it is to do anything else, which is why at the beginning of, uh, I think it's uh, Psalm chapter 2. I don't have the verse up there. It just came to me. But, you know, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm in the middle. Look, look, look what he, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Ha, ha, ha. All the powers of the world come against him. He just laughs. Like, right? His power is absolute. And that makes a difference, doesn't it? Doesn't that make a difference in the way we live and the way we trust? If God's power is absolute, then God is absolutely trustworthy. He is able to do. You know, the... the, the the biggest thing we ask of God is no harder for Him to do than the smaller thing. And that, and that changes the way you live. That changes the way you trust. That changes the way you pray. It's been said before that the, the problem for most Christians is not that we ask too much of God, but we ask too little. Because we maybe project on God humanness, which is degrees of difficulty. There is no degree of difficulty. He is absolute in His power. Fourthly, finally, we see in Genesis 1-1, God is absolute in His presence, in His presence. Here's how I picture it. This is crude, rudimentary. There's no way to fully understand this, but sometimes pictures help. I, that God is absolute in His presence. You can be no closer or, or no farther from God anywhere you are in, in space or in time. Because God stands outside space and time, and I think of space and time almost like, a, like an orb that's kind of floating there, all space, history, all place, and God just moves around it, and he sees in it, and he can, and he can, put, he can put his hand and interact with, with the, any part of what's happening here in space, in time of which he stands outside. That's kind of how I picture that. God's presence is absolute, so he is inescapable. He is inescapable. Wherever you are, God is. Which, for some people, will be good news. For some people, it's kind of difficult news because some people are trying to hide from God. They're trying to live without God. They're trying to run from God. Remember Jonah? Oh, he wants me to go to Nineveh? Ugh, don't want to go to Nineveh. I'm going to go to that place. I'm going to get a boat. I'm going to do it at night so God doesn't see me. And then I'm going to go into the belly of the boat so God doesn't see me. And then I'm going to sail the Mediterranean to the first... He bought the ticket for the... They think it's the, what, the tip of Spain by Gibraltar? That was the furthest they knew existed. That's where he was going. To get as far away from God as he could. 
He went from the belly of the boat to the belly of the whale, and you know maybe how that story ends. You cannot escape the presence of God. For David, that was such a blessing. And for us, if we were to think of that, that is such a blessing. Like, I think the words are up there actually. Psalm 139. Maybe they're not. Are they up there? No. Okay, I'll turn there. Psalm 139. You, you likely know these, these kind of um, famous words of David. He says in Psalm 139.7, Where can I go from your spirit? Talking to God. Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you, God. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. You can never be far from God. His presence is absolute. You cannot hide from Him, outwit Him, outweight Him, outsmart Him, outrun Him. His, his presence is absolute. This is God. This is the God of the beginning. This is the God who creates. He is absolute and He is independent. And if that's true, if God created everything, then, then you are not God. Because some people, they're acting like they're God. And if we're honest, there's all different ways we tend to want to kind of take on or assume some of these traits or responsibilities. But if God created everything, then, then you and I in the world, we are finite and we are dependent Right? Like I said, the creator, God, he, he can create, he can bara, but we can only asa. We can only take what's already there and reshape it. We are dependent, we are completely dependent. Water, air, air like, we, like, not, like the self, self-made person is a myth, is a myth. We are utterly dependent, contingent, our existence on God, us and the whole universe, every second of every day. Your next heartbeat, your next breath, every moment you are contingent on God. Not only did he birth the world and birth us and create, but by his power he holds together and he sustains it moment by moment. And apart from his will, everything would just vanish. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what Paul says in Acts chapter 14, verses, or 17, verses 24. He's in Athens, and Paul's talking about all these, all these pagans who have all these gods and temples and idols. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples by, built by human hands. You cannot confine him. From one man, he made all the nations. Um, he's, not, sorry, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him though he is not far from any of us for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring for in him we live and move and have our being. We, in every way, in every moment, are completely dependent upon God.
It describes Jesus this way in Colossians 1, 15. Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in Him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in, in Him all things, what? In Him all things hold together. It's this picture that not only did God like just start it all and stands off to the side or he leaves to go do something else, right? But, but not only did he create, but, but every moment by his will, by his power, he sustains that which he has created. And that's where we began in, in Hebrews 1.3, that, that the Son is the exact representation of God, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So what we are to understand when we hear Genesis 1.1 is God is absolute and independent and we are utterly dependent on Him. We can do nothing ultimately. And that's humbling. This is humbling. But God can do everything. So in light of Genesis 1.1, what should we do? There's a lot there. But as I was thinking about this, the words in the book of Proverbs, chapter 9, verse 10, came to me. They say this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If God is the beginning of all things, then the fear of God is the beginning of understanding, is the beginning of wisdom. To rightly know, to know and to rightly live, we need to rightly understand God and relate to Him. And the way we are to relate to Him, this sort of God who is absolute in His existence and essence and power and presence, the only appropriate thing to do then is to fear God. That's where it all has to begin To fear God. Now, that doesn't mean to be frantic the, the way that we're afraid of dying or the way that we're afraid of a predator or the way that we're afraid of cancer, something that's a harm that we need to keep ourselves away from. That's not what it means when he says, fear the Lord. It means to give, to take really seriously, to not be flippant, to not be dismissive, to not be disregarding, but to really consider, to show proper regard, respect, reverence, Because of the greatness of this one, I think of it like kind of the difference between how you would react with a butterfly in your backyard and a lion. If you're going out to have a, you know, a barbecue on your back deck and you get out there to, to turn on the barbecue and, and there's a butterfly flitting around, what do you do? What do you do? What do you do, Dave? Nothing. Yeah, you'd be like, butterfly, don't care. Doesn't matter. It doesn't impact what I do at all. Like, it's not going to impact how, a lot, like, how I'm doing this. It's just a butterfly. There's no fear of the... Now, let's say you step out your backyard and you see crouch, like, crouching behind the bushes, a lion. There's a lion prowling around in your backyard. What do you do? 
Nothing? Get the gun, okay? Get the gun. Get the gun. You go, whoa, 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 that piece of information is important. I have to seriously consider some things. What is a lion like? What do they do? What does the lion want? Like for me, just to go about my business without regard for the lion would be foolish and dangerous, right? You would have a proper fear, a proper respect for the lion because of its, because of what it is. The most foolish thing is to believe that there is a God, but then to live like that doesn't matter that much. But to go through life not thinking of or trying to regard or seeking to know or seeking the wisdom of or seeking to obey, seeking to, 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 to want to know what is he like? What does that mean for me? What does he want? How do I live in relationship to him? Like, like to believe that there is a God or might be a God, but then just to go about your life without regard for God in every way? That would be foolish. To say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom doesn't just mean it's the first thing, it's the first step of many steps. It means it is the foundation. It is the foundation on which everything is built, our life is built, all of our beliefs, actions, desires are derived from a fear of the Lord. That is the beginning of all true wisdom and understanding is a proper knowledge and regard for God. Because, you know, we all fear something or someone. What we fear is that thing that looms largest in our mind, that which is the ultimate consideration, that which is our ultimate concern. And for some, the thing that they fear is death, right? That's, a, that's the guiding concern in their life. Well, that's going to impact, like, everything is a risk calculation, everything you do, right? I'm not downhill skiing. I'm cross-country skiing. I could die if I downhill ski, Right? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to ride motorbikes. I'm not going to jump. I'm not going to, like, I'm going to build my life around, the, con- around the, 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 the concern for death, right? So the thing that becomes most important is, is security. It's all about risk management. For some people, what looms greatest is, like, fear of cancer or sickness or discomfort, right? And so then the, then the greatest concern is, like, what am I eating? How much of this? Do I have enough of that? Supplements, vitamins, all those things. It's all about health and it's all about fitness, right? Because the thing they fear most is that, For some, what they fear most is maybe how others view them, the regard of the world, reputation. And so that's the guiding kind of consideration in everything they do, the filter through which they, they, they measure all of their actions and thoughts and words. But if God exists, and if He is this type of God, then the thing that we have to fear, the only thing we have to fear is to fear God. Because imagine now, it's not just a lion in the backyard. Imagine that the God who created and controls the lion is in the backyard. The one who created it, knows it, knows how it works, and actually has control over everything it does, is also in the backyard. Now what are you, now what are you concerned with? The lion? You're not, you're, you don't actually care about the lion anymore. You're not concerned about the lion. Right? 
Now your thoughts are on the one who made the lion, the one who controls the lion. Maybe this analogy makes no sense. I don't know, right? What I'm trying to say is there is this inverse relationship with fear. The proper fear of God, proper regard of God, dispels all other fears. And, you know, we we have fears in life. We have concerns. There are things in our life that are daunting, obstacles, challenges, that they, 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 they appear really big. And I guess what I'm saying is if we really understand, if we have a vision for who God is, the God who created and had a proper regard and a proper fear for that God, that would change the way we look at all the other things we're afraid of, all the other challenges we face. There would be this inverse relationship. The bigger God would be, the smaller those things would come. The more powerful we would understand God to be, the less powerful those things, the, the, the grip they would have in our life. The fear of God would dispel all other fears for there is nothing bigger than God to fear. There's nothing more powerful. There's nothing more wise. There's nothing and no one more enduring than God. So the most important thing we can have in light of Genesis 1-1 is fear of God. Proper understanding of him, a proper regard for him. And, and so that's, that's maybe a question I, I want to leave with you. I know it's a really big question, but are you living that way? Are you living as if God is God? As if God is absolute in existence and essence and power and presence? Are you living in the fear of the Lord? making Him and His will your ultimate concern. In everything you do, in all the decisions you make, in every area of your life, determining your actions and your values, do you, is, is He the most important consideration? I'll close with this story of a man who was uh, climbing this mountain and was very steep, he was getting near the top and he slipped He slid down the steep mountainside right to a cliff, and as he was going over the cliff, there was like a a little branch there he was able to grab, and he was dangling by that branch off this cliff, and he wasn't able to pull himself back on to the mountainside, and he knew that it was just a matter of time until he would um, have to let go, and he would fall to his death, And, and he wasn't a very religious person, but at that time, of course, he became one, and so he looked up to heaven, and he called out, is there anyone up there who can help me? He didn't really expect an answer, so he was greatly surprised when a deep voice came back saying, yes, I am here, and I can help you. But first, you're going to have to let go of that branch. After a long pause, the man looked up, and he called out again, is there anybody else up there who can help me? (laughs) And the answer is, no, there's not. No, there's not. There is no one else. There is nothing else. There is what's, there's no like what's behind door number two. There is but God. That's good news. 
Because God, as revealed in his word, and has revealed in his word become flesh, Jesus Christ shows us that our God is worthy. He is worthy of being loved. He is worthy of being obeyed. He is worthy of being worshipped and trusted because he is a good God. And he can do everything. Are you living as if God is God? Are you fearing him, the one who made all things and sustains all things by his powerful word? I'll let you take that question home with you. And I want to pray this prayer over you. Normally, I just kind of summon my own words, but I just want to pray over us as the worship team comes up to lead us in one final song of worship. Um, Words recorded in Romans chapter 11. You get the sense here that Paul, having just recounted the greatness of God, all of his attributes, his, his, he, is so, he is so moved and stirred by this, the, the vision of God, the reality of who he is, that, that he, just, um, he writes these words of worship, which are called the doxology. So this is going to be my prayer over us. And so just treat this like a prayer. Pray these words. Just maybe you want to close your eyes and think on him and receive these words of prayer. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever. And together we say,